Now, hopefully by now, as we've been spending several weeks in Proverbs, you've seen that this particular book, Proverbs, blows away any notion uh, that we as Christians are to compartmentalize our life or, or divide the activities in our life as if some of those things are going to be classified as spiritual and other things are to be classified as secular activities. Because when we look at wisdom, this aspect of wisdom, the skill of living rightly, we see that wisdom is to touch every single aspect of our life. Wisdom is necessary for all of life. There's not a single part of our life that should be untouched by wisdom. Because all of life matters. And God is concerned over every activity and affair of our life. Nothing is to be seen as morally neutral. I think we've gotten a glimpse of that in the first four lessons that we've looked at from the Father to the Son in those first three chapters. And today, as we turn to chapter four, we're going to see that uh, continue here. Uh, For this chapter contains three poetic lessons from the Father to the Son. That's right. We're going to cover three of them today. It's not impossible. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. All right, lessons 5, 6, and 7. And this is the way it's divided. Lesson 5, verses 1 through 9. Lesson 6, verses 10 through 19. Lesson 7, verses 20 through 27. Now, each one of those lessons is, in a sense, its own contained, self-contained unit. But there, there is a flow to these three particular lessons that lend to teaching them together. We're going to cover some ground quickly. Uh, there's a lot of things that have been repeated, you know, lessons that we've already looked at. So we're not going to camp on those uh, for a long period of time. And we will focus on some more of the new elements there. Okay. So each uh, session, you'll know we've come to that next lesson because it's marked by the typical introduction. My son. All right. When we get that to that, you'll see that's the next lesson itself. So the chapter divides up nice, uh, nice and neat from these three lessons. Uh, So our elements here that we're going to look at in this first lesson is that you and I are to commit to to getting wisdom. Commit to getting wisdom. And so let's look at the first nine verses there of chapter 4. Hear the words of the Lord. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction. Be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom, get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her, and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. Whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. These are the words of the Lord. There at the introduction of this particular lesson, you see the father appealing to his sons. Now, that's a little change in the introduction before it was to his son, presumably the crown prince. But this is to his sons, right? Instructions to his sons, plural, right? And and the appeal there is to be attentive so that they can gain wisdom. They can gain insight. They can gain understanding. And he's telling his sons, listen, I give you good instruction, Sound teaching, so don't forsake it. Don't neglect it. Don't abandon it. There is a scriptural mandate for parents here to to transmit godly wisdom and teaching to their children. It's our primary responsibility. Now, this lesson goes a little step further because of what he references here in verse 3. Now, he's referring to when, when he was a child and his father was teaching him. Here's what my dad taught me. Now, this is Solomon writing here. So who is he talking about? He's talking about David. 
talking about David. Grandpa David here is who he's referring to. Now, if you read 1 Kings 2, 1 through 4, you're going to get a, a, a taste of that instruction that David gives to his young son Solomon, who's about to assume the throne over the people of God there, over Israel. And the instructions David is, in essence, giving him in his last moments of life. So I encourage you to go home and read that portion in 1 Kings chapter 2. But there's an important principle here regarding the instruction of wisdom. Wisdom has to be passed down, brothers and sisters. We have to pass wisdom on to our children. It's an enormous responsibility we have before the Lord to raise our children in the fear and knowledge of the Lord. But the reality is, whether we know this or not, whether we do this intentionally or not, we're already passing on things to our children. Always doing that. We're passing something down to them. We can be passing on to them the wisdom from God. We can be passing on to them, you know, a sound teaching. We can be passing on to them a strong work ethic and, 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 and all these things, how to take responsibilities, how to, uh, how to be a humble individual and how to watch our mouths and watch what we say. We can be teaching them good patterns of, of life and behavior and actions, right? Wisdom, the skill of living rightly. Or we can be passing down patterns of foolish behavior, a poor work ethic, and laziness, and a host of bad habits and other sinful things. We're always passing something on to the next generation. Now, if you're a first-generation Christian, and you have children, think about this. You're like this first link in the chain of passing down God's Word, God's wisdom to your children. And, and, and God can use you to break a generational pattern of sin and wickedness and folly that may have marked your bloodline. But then you're also to pass those on to your grandchildren as well. See, it doesn't stop. It doesn't just stop with your kids. The goal is your kids' kids. And if God gives you length of life, your great-grandchildren... Like, we should desire that. I don't know how many of you desire that. If I pray God gives me a long life, I would love to lay my hands on my great-grandchildren and bless them. What a joy that would be to, to teach my grandchildren, be part of discipling my grandchildren spiritually. There's this element of multi-generational discipleship that's in view here. It's the instructions God laid for His people, right? That they are to teach their children. At every point of the day, in everything they're doing, there is a lesson in God's word and God's wisdom for our kids and our grandchildren. We have that parental authority given to us by God to communicate God's word and God's will to our children. So grandparents, that's not time to coast and act like, well, you know, my job now is just to enjoy my grandkids. I'm going to let them do whatever they want to do. I'm going to spoil the snot out of them. Discipline is up to the parents. No, no, don't, don't, don't take that attitude. Don't say, I'm, I'm done with raising kids. I just want to enjoy them. No, that doesn't stop. We should always have this kind of spiritual discipleship and life discipleship in view. Brothers and sisters, these emerging generations need it because of the world that they're living in there. So read the Bible to your kids, teach them to pray, bring them to the gathering of the church, have family worship, but also teach them life skills. Life's not just the spiritual, right? Because everything is spiritual. There's nothing morally neutral. So then now you're also looking at teaching them this skill of living rightly. Teach them how to handle money, how to be honest, how to be hardworking, how not to be easily offended. My goodness, everybody's offended nowadays. Teach them that that's dumb and sinful and wrong, Right? Teach them how to deal with anxiety and worry and how to complete tasks, right? How to follow through on the things that you say that you're going to do. Teach your kids how to take criticism and how to give criticism rightly, right? And the million other things that we're supposed to be teaching them, right? That's in view here. That's our responsibility, brothers and sisters. And I've shared about that before, but, but we see this repeated time and time again in these lessons, and, and that's what's present here. So what's the nature of the teaching here that David 
had instructed Solomon that now he is teaching his own sons here. Well, we see in verse 4 through 9 here, it starts with this element of getting wisdom. Get wisdom. Get wisdom and she will give you the crown of life. So to get wisdom is to get life. Keep my commandments, he says in that second part of verse 4, and live. Keep my commandments. Notice how throughout Proverbs we see that wisdom is always tied to obedience to God's word. Always. Now here's something interesting, because you may not know this. A son was not really considered a true son just because of biology. It, it wasn't just the fact that, that this child was the biological product of the father here. Uh, because we're going to see something here in a moment in Deuteronomy here. A true son was only a true son if he was obedient to his parents. A rebellious son was disowned and actually far worse could happen to him. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 18 through 21. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him, bring him out to the elders of the city at the gate of the place where he lives, and they shall say to the elders of the city, This, our son, is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He's a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Now, there's a great passage to have your kids memorize, huh? How many of you had that printed out and posted on the fridge? I've been waiting to see how the Gospel Project illustrates this for their kids' curriculum, you know. But, but listen to the implications of that, the, the severity, right? The importance of obedience. Why? Because ultimately it's not the parents that they're being rebellious against and disobeying, but, but God Himself. And this was the covenant people of God. When we obey God, our life is prolonged. That's, that's what Proverbs is teaching us. Because we avoid the things that can cut our life short, that can bring our, uh, our life to ruin and cause us misery and pain. That's why the promises of God are laden with this, this aspect of that you live, live long, a long life on the land. Right? That was the sign of blessedness to the Israelites, the covenant people of God. That's what God had promised. The life that does not heed God's command, does not submit to his authority, will often find themselves in an early grave. Okay? That's, that's the point of what we see in God's word. But the life in view here isn't just a long physical life here on the earth, the, the natural life. It, it's eternal life. And, and, and God's people here didn't have a robust and full-orbed theology concerning eternal life. We have a more fully developed because of the fullness of the revelation through Christ here, but it's eternal life that's in view here. And that's what we have in Christ. And over these three lessons, that aspect of life is repeated four times, actually five times, uh, with the commandment to live here by obedience to, to God's commands. Okay? So it's a big deal. It's important. Now, wisdom here in this passage, again, is personified as a woman. And there's rather, you know, romantic, spicy language, I think, the way uh, David is talking here about Lady Wisdom. Now, again, remember, wisdom is personified as a beautiful woman. Why? Because, yeah, she's, Solomon wants to make this an appealing lesson to his son to get wisdom. She's like a beautiful woman that you are to seek after and pursue that has these kinds of qualities. And when you find her, hold on to her because there's going to be life there. There's blessings. She's a treasure, a greatest treasure here, there. But, but look at this language here. Where he says, do not forsake her. Love her. Prize her highly. Embrace her. Her, right? And the motivating promise is if the son does these things, wisdom will keep him. Wisdom will guard him. Wisdom will exalt him. Wisdom will honor him and grace his head with a beautiful crown. That's pretty awesome. He's saying love wisdom 
and she will love you back. Keep wisdom, and she will keep you. Hold her up in high esteem, lift her up, and she will honor you and exalt you. And ultimately, wisdom will bestow on you a crown that is far greater, uh, worth more, and more important than any crown a king wears. And that's the crown that David is telling Solomon that he is to seek after. And now Solomon is teaching his sons. Now what Solomon knew as uh, a shadow of a promise, right? A, a, a type, we get to understand it fully in Christ, right? We, we have the full revelation of it here. That this is talking about the crown of life. James the Apostle of the Lord writes in one twelve of James, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The crown of life. That's what we have in Christ Jesus. It's, it's the very crown that, that Christ promised the church at Smyrna. We study this in Revelation chapter 2. He told them that if they were faithful unto death, he will give them the crown of life. It's the crown of overcomers. It's the crown of the ones who persevere to the end. Who make it on the last day by the grace of God and through the power of the Spirit of God and through the work of Jesus Christ. We saw that in the heavenly scenes there in Revelation as we studied it. The church triumphant, worshiping God, wearing the crown of eternal life before the throne of God. Singing the song of the redeemed. We saw the the 24 elders casting their crowns at the feet of the Lamb. and Bowing down in worship, right? The crown of eternal life is promised. To those who are in Christ. That's why pursuing wisdom. Which is not a thing. Is a person. Pursuing Christ. Is a matter of life and death. He's the greatest treasure. Now when you think about. Our obedience. Or more specifically. Our lack of obedience to the Lord. Right. Our our obedience that's in fits and starts. Or our half hearted obedience, or even our own rebellion, right? Uh, What do we deserve? Like, when when we read Deuteronomy 21, who is that about? That's about us, isn't it? We're the rebellious sons. We're the rebellious sons and daughters. We have failed God. We have disobeyed God. Any attempts that we've had to grasp at righteousness or obedience always fall short of the glory of God and the righteousness of God. And we deserve exactly what Deuteronomy 21 talks about there. Death. That's what we deserve. That's our destiny for our rebellion against God. But what do we find? What do we find in Christ? We find that He is the perfectly obedient Son of God. He's the faithful son of Proverbs. He's the one who has not failed his fathers, who obeyed all of his father's commands, who held to his teachings and his word. He was fully submitted to and obedient to his earthly parents and fully submitted to and obedient to his heavenly father. This is why the active obedience of Christ is what enables him to earn perfect righteousness for you and for me. And why that perfect obedience and why that perfect righteousness can now be credited to us who are rebellious and disobedient And become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's what we get. And that's why. And the only way you and I could be crowned with this beautiful crown of of eternal life. Is because of Christ's perfect obedience for us. Isn't that good news? Because what he's talking about there we don't live up to. We don't measure up to it. We cannot meet this righteous standard. But Christ has done that for us. Commit yourself to wisdom, to Christ. See, twice the grandfather's instruction is to get wisdom and to get insight. Now, that word get doesn't mean to like, get it, like to snatch it or to, to grab it up or to seize it. It means to buy. It means to acquire by means of a financial transaction. In essence, it's saying buy wisdom, buy insight. In fact, Proverbs 23, 23 tells us that. Buy truth, do not sell it. Buy wisdom, instruction, and understanding. That's what we're supposed to do. How do we do that? Well, verse 7 says this. The beginning of wisdom is this. 
Get wisdom, and whatever you get, get insight. Now, I thought the beginning of the wisdom was the fear of the Lord. Indeed, it tells us that in chapter 1 here. But I'm saying the beginning of wisdom is this. Buy wisdom. Whatever you get, buy insight. What is, he, what is he trying to say here? What he's saying is that wisdom itself, wisdom, who is Christ, as we know, right, is the supreme treasure to acquire. And whatever the price of getting wisdom is, pay it. No matter the cost, no matter if it costs you everything, get wisdom. Buy wisdom. But the principal thing is that you need wisdom to get wisdom. And then when you get wisdom, you're going to want to get more wisdom. It's not a one-time transaction. It's a recurring transaction. It's a recurring purchase. So we commit not just to getting wisdom, we also commit to wisdom itself. Wisdom is Christ. And the first principle to getting wisdom is that there is no wisdom apart from Christ. The way we get wisdom is to get Christ. Trusting Christ. Trusting in His obedience on our behalf. Trusting in His work of redemption and salvation. It is the beginning of wisdom. It is how we start to get wisdom and grow in wisdom as we grow in Christ. The second lesson here in Proverbs chapter 4, 10 through 19 is a commitment to the right path. Let's read here now verse 10 on. Hear my son and accept my words that the years of your life may be many. See that theme again, right? I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered. And if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked. Do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they cannot sleep unless they've done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. The recurring theme that we have seen here, it's it's a main theme of Proverbs, is this metaphor of the two paths. These two paths that are laid out before the son that he's got to make a choice, a decision. Which path is he going to take? Which path is going to determine the course of his life? So that metaphor for the path, of course, is the course of our life, the direction of our life. So it's a rich metaphor for the actions in life that we take, the steps that we take. But it's not just a direction. It's also our final destination. These two paths lead in two different directions and to two different destinations. So the son has these two paths available to him. The way of wisdom and the way of folly. The path of the righteous, the path of the wicked. Those two directions lead to two completely different places. Those same paths are the ones that are before us, aren't they? The path of life, the path of the wicked. Now, the father has taught the son the way of wisdom. By his teaching, by his example, he's led him on the paths of uprightness. That's what he says there in verse 11. We're reminded in that, right, that the way of wisdom is not found by accident. We don't stumble into wisdom. We don't get it by human intuition. We don't get it by osmosis, right? No, it must be learned. And it's learned by listening. It's learned by holding on to right teaching, which is God's word. Now, this poetic lesson is a great representation of our spiritual walk. It's a beautiful portrait of the daily Christian life and our sanctification, our growth in holiness and godliness. We've come to know wisdom, which is Christ, and then we must continue to walk in the way of Christ, which is the way of wisdom. That is the way. Which path we are on is going to then be demonstrated by our daily decisions and our daily actions. It's going to reflect that. Again, nothing 
is morally neutral. What we do, what we say, how we act, how we think, and what we think has everything to do with which path we are on. It has everything to do with Jesus. Now, we can claim to be on the path of righteousness. We can claim to be followers of Jesus. We can claim to be on the way of wisdom. But if we lack self-control or have no self-control, if we're always argumentative, if we, we lose our temper quickly, if we continually make foolish decisions and don't listen to wise, sound counsel, if we never follow through on things, what are those things revealing about what path we're actually on? It's important for us to examine that. It's important for us to, to, to do that diagnostic upon ourselves. Are those things reflective of the path of wisdom or the path of folly? When one is on the way of wisdom and the path of life, what he says here is that wisdom is going to guide each of the son's steps. We'll guide our steps. What are our steps? Our steps are our actions. Our, our steps are the, each decision that we make in life. If we have wisdom, if we get wisdom, it's going to guard our decisions. It's, our decisions, our actions are informed by wisdom. And so our walking and running in life, right, our rhythm and pace through life is not going to be hindered or hampered, right? And we will have full assurance that we'll reach our destination. That's what wisdom guarantees. That your way will be made smooth. That you won't get tripped up and stumble. Now, does that mean that we won't have challenges in life? No. Does that mean we're not ever going to experience difficulties and hard situations to walk through in life? No. Rather that when you walk in wisdom and, and walk the way of wisdom, you will be free of all of the moral hindrances, the moral obstacles that can bring about God's judgment and that could otherwise ruin your life and, and cause you to stumble. And you make the right decisions following the way of wisdom, following what God has instructed us, brothers and sisters. Now, the consequences of following you may incur the ire of the world, but that's not a bad thing, is it? Yeah, it might cause difficulties in life, but when you lay your head you know, to rest at night, you know you've pleased God. You've honored God. You've done what He's asked of you to do. There's peace in your sleep, like we talked about last week, a peaceful night's rest. We all want that. This is what's in view here with the smooth way, the, the stumble-free way. It's not that we won't go through things in life, but wisdom will show us that she is the proven and straight and safe route in life so that we can reach our intended destination of eternal life. What the psalmist says in 119.165, Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I love that. Great peace for those who love your word, your law, your commands. Now, love isn't just, oh, there's such great words. No, it's with the intention of doing them, right? Nothing can make them stumble. When you're on the right path, you avoid the things that complicate life, that bring misery and ruin and can trip you up. And verse 13 says, keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Right? Three commands to encourage the son's commitment to the right path of wisdom. Hold on to wisdom. Don't let her go. And guard her. And that motivating promise follows there. You will have life. You'll have life. Think about this here. Wisdom leads to eternal life. Two roads, two destinations. Road to life, the road to death. Wisdom leads to life. Now, whereas wisdom is the path that we're to take, and that we should be on, now the Father talks about the path of the wicked and the way of the evil. And those are to be strictly avoided. Six strong commands, right, are, are given to the Son here concerning the avoidance of that path. Don't enter the path of the wicked. Do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it. Pass on. You think he's trying to drive some point across here, right? Like, son, don't even darken the doorway of that path. Don't cross over the threshold of that path. You know, don't travel down that path. Don't go on it. If you approach it, 
turn away, turn aside, pass it, run, go, stay on the straight path. I mean, the father knows the son's going to be tempted by that path. He knows he's going to be tempted and allured by sin. We saw that back in, in lesson one. There's going to be things in life that might seem right and might seem like the right road, but he's going to need wisdom to discern between the two, which is the straight path and which is the road that leads to destruction and the path that, of, of the way of the wicked. We need that discernment. This is, wisdom trains us to discern the right path so that we make this commitment to stay on it and to walk on it. We need commitment. We need to know that. We need that kind of wisdom. Just a couple of quick illustrations. How many parents, and we've mentioned this before, how many parents don't like to discipline their children because they think it's more loving to let them express themselves and figure out their own way? Well, that's not the path of wisdom, is it? That's not the path of wisdom at all. That's going to lead to your children's to, to harm in their life and great misery for you as a parent. No, we're, we're to discipline our kids. Wisdom tells us that. Hoarding your possessions, being stingy and a miser and not being generous and, and trying to amass and acquire because you think that's what's going to bring financial security. Well, wisdom tells us that's not the way that works. That's not the way that works at all. We need wisdom to discern in those moments what might seem like the right road, but is not. It's easy to discern what right shouldn't be the right road. We know those things, sexually immoral things, dishonest things, right? But, but there are other things in life that we're like, wow, we really need wisdom to parse this out. Verse 16 and 17, here are the reasons to avoid the deadly way of the wicked. The wicked are addicted to their wickedness. It's all they want. The wicked are are like junkies who just live for the next fix. And they'll do anything to get it. They'll steal, they'll assault, they'll commit acts of violence and murder. It's all they think about. It's all they crave. They forsake every other type of nourishment just for the next high. That's the comparison that he's making here about the wicked and why they should be avoided. It's all they eat and drink and sleep, right? That's all they do. Foolishness, wickedness evil. And it says that that they don't even sleep until they can drag someone else down with them. That's the way of the wicked. With this strong imagery, right? The father's laying this before the son like, dude, there's the path of life, right? That's the good life. That's the blessed life. That's the way you should walk. It's straight. You're not going to get tripped up. Or there's this way, the way of the wicked. And here's what they're like. And here's the outcome of that way of life. So choose wisely, choose rightly. The Father's lesson concludes by contrasting the two paths uh, with the metaphors of light and darkness. You can imagine, right, which one's the path of light. Light is wisdom. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn. The light of the first, you know, the first uh, sun, right, the morning sun. Don't you love that? Right? Just when that sun just starts kind of peeking up, raising up in the sky, and now we have this cast of light that comes upon what was previously darkened and things that were hidden. Right? And as the sun moves up into its zenith, right, and the day is growing brighter and brighter, it's sunnier and sunnier, and more light is coming until full day. This is, this is what he is likening the path of righteousness here. And that's how it is with the righteous. That's how it is with the Christian's walk of sanctification, brothers and sisters. We are progressively growing in wisdom and holiness. It's getting brighter and brighter until the last day. And as we grow in wisdom, the way of wisdom grows brighter and brighter. What a beautiful thing here. Psalm 119, 105, the psalmist said, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Light's awesome, isn't it? I live in an area that's pretty dark at night. Looks one way in that darkness. Some parts are kind of scary. But we thought it's a good place to film a horror movie or some thriller of some sort. But it's beautiful when the light starts coming up, right? And you can see and things have become clear. 
This is the path of righteousness. There's no darkness, just an ever-growing and ever-increasing light. But look at the contrast. The path of the wicked is what? Deep darkness. Like the darkness of a deep underground cavern. You can't see. It reminds me of, of my time before Christ got a hold of my life. It was deep darkness. Spiritually and morally blind. You, you were like that too. There was no truth. There was no knowledge of the truth. You were fumbling and stumbling around life. You couldn't avoid the obstacles to, to foolishness. You ever tried to do that at home? Walk in the dark? Maybe you don't want to turn the light on because you'll wake you know, your spouse or your kids up. You slam into something, right? Stub your toe, hit your, bang your knee or your shin, and, and you praise God, right? That's what you do. You <laughs> praise the Lord during that moment, right? <laughs> Just words of, you know, adoration come forth from your lips. You can't see. You're stumbling around in darkness. This is what our life is like apart from Christ. That's the way of, the, of folly. That is the path of the wicked and the path of the evil. Darkness. And such darkness that they can't even see how their actions lead them to stumble. They don't even know why they stumble. Don't you know people like that? Who are on the way of folly. And things are always happening to them. And they're always wondering why. Can't believe I lost my job. What could it be that you're lazy? You showed up late every day. You know, Took long lunches. That's probably why you got fired. How many people do we know like that, right? Always complaining that they don't have friends, but they don't take into account that, you know, their mouths are the reasons that they don't have friends. (laughs) They're cutting people down, their sarcasm, their biting language. They don't know why they're stumbling. But the path of the righteous is light. It's light because of Christ, John 8, 12 Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Right? So being in Christ means that we are in the light. We, we have the light to illuminate our way, to illuminate our path in life. Because there's no darkness in him, brothers and sisters. Because there's no darkness in him, we should not be walking in darkness, should we? Every step of our growth and spiritual maturity, every step towards Christ, right, is a path that gets brighter and brighter. So are you walking in the light? Are you walking in the light of Christ? Or are you stumbling around in darkness? Jesus is the path in view here. John 14, 6, that's what Jesus said. He said, I am the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The way is not just our path in life. The way is a person. It's Christ. When we're in Him, we're on this path where each day will get brighter and brighter. If there are several aspects in your life, and this is what you need to examine, that are more reflective of the way of foolishness and evil, that's not only dangerous because of the consequences we can face in life. We're going to face some type of temporal consequence as a result of, of sin, but but what is that revealing about the path that we're on? And if we're moving away from light and life. That's why once again, examine your heart here. And again, we need to go to Christ with these things. But, but we could keep to our daily devotion. I could be faithful in reading my word every single day. Keeping my you know, quiet time devotional, whatever you want to call it. Even being faithful to, to attend service. But again, if I can't control my tongue. If I have anger issues, if I nag my husband or my wife incessantly, husbands can nag too, right, ladies? Yeah. It's not just, not just the, hus- the, the wives nagging, right? Show up always late for work, right? That's indicative of bigger problems in my life. Yes, it could be a lack of discipline in your life, but that is also a problem, isn't it? Because if we're growing in the light, if we're, we are growing in, in, in the light of Christ, right, and the way of wisdom is becoming more and more illuminated to, to us, then 
these are areas that are being brought to the light. And through the conviction and power of the Spirit of God, we should be growing in spiritual maturity in these areas. Make sure you're not straying away from the light and towards darkness. The third lesson, that we're to commit to guard our heart. Proverbs chapter 40, 20 through 27. Let's read it. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance. For from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet. Then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Seven uh, here, the seventh lesson is, is a powerful life lesson. In fact, it contains one of the key verses in all of Proverbs there. And I want you to notice what's its main emphasis. It's the heart. It's the heart. It's dealing with the heart. It says in verse 4 of, the, of lesson 5, let your heart hold fast my words. And then here in this seventh lesson, verse 21, the son is to keep the father's words and teachings where? Within his heart. And then in verse 23, he's taught to keep his heart with all vigilance. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. Now, we've covered this before. Our need of a new heart. It's the promise that was made of the new covenant in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and, and fulfilled, right, with, with Christ's uh, death, resurrection, and ascension, right? We now can be born again. Raised up, become a new creation in Him. We had need of a new heart. We didn't just need a, uh, to get slapped with a fresh coat of paint and, and some exterior cosmetic change or, or just modify our behavior to be a little bit better people. No, we needed to become something brand new. Brand new altogether. We needed a new heart. That is the real human problem itself. We need a new heart. Our heart was what? Broken. Our heart was sin-sick, dark, dead. This is why we loved the things that God hates and, and, and hated the things that God loves. That was our condition. We were rotten to the core. Now, if you didn't think you were rotten to the core, then there might be a little issue with self-righteousness you need to address. Because that's what we were. That's why we need a new heart. This is why the scripture talks in that language. Oh, we just need to just make them better moral people. We need to be made new people with a desire now to obey God and obey his word. Now, I want you to see here the principle of this lesson here is that your heart is the command center of your life. This is why the change of heart is necessary. This is why the new heart is what is needed here. The heart is the command center of your life. It is the compass that will point you to a certain direction, a certain path. The right path or the wrong path. Which is why, what does the son need to do? Keep his heart, guard his heart, to walk in the way of wisdom. Your heart, my heart, directs the course of our life. Every action, every movement, every decision... Is about this. What you find here is, I love how one commentator calls this section, the anatomy of discipleship. Because take note of all of the body parts mentioned in this passage. Ears, eyes, the heart, the whole body, the mouth, the feet. And what drives all of that? It's the heart. That's in the driver's seat. And our heart must be oriented properly so that it can direct all of our parts towards righteous things and away of, from wicked things. Verse 20 tells his son, incline your ear to my sayings. Literally that word incline means to bend. To bend your ear. Direct your ears to hear the voice of wisdom. You and I need to attenuate our hearing to the voice of wisdom. 
Because there are so many competing voices vying for our ears, for our attention out there. And you have to pay attention to what are you listening to? What messages are you taking in through your ears? What are you allowing in? Verse 21, let these sayings, let these teachings not escape from your sight. Your eyes are taking things in all the time. In Ecclesiastes in chapter 1 there, it talks about the eye is never satisfied. Your eyes and ears are always on. Always taking in. Always being stimulated by something. Taking something into your life. So what are your eyes drawn to continually? What are you watching? What consumes your utmost attention? What you take in through your ears, what you take in through your eyes, where does that go? To your heart. Straight to your heart. Straight to your heart. Your eyes and your ears are the gateway to your heart. Jesus says this, Matthew chapter 6, 22 and 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Your eye is the lamp of your body. What are you taking in? Because it's going down into your heart. And things are happening there in your heart that in turn are going to drive the direction of your life. Why do we continually exhort you to have a steady intake of the word of God, to memorize it, to put it in your heart? Because it's going to direct the course of your life. Psalm 119, 11 and 15. I'm just going to read it. It's not on screen there. But the psalmist said, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I think the psalmist knew, look, now my eyes want to go after things, right? Whether it's lustful things or uh, things I'm coveting, right? So what do I need to do? I need to store up your word in my heart. I need to fix my gaze and meditate on your words and your commands and your ways so that my life will be directed in a God-oriented fashion in the way of wisdom and life. Verse 23, keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. I like the NIV's rendering of of this translation a little bit better. Above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. Everything you do flows from it. That's not just a key verse for Proverbs. That's the key verse for life, isn't it? The heart is the source of everything in your life. It's the command center. Everything you do flows from it. It's like the bridge of the starship, right? Captain giving the orders, right? And it's being carried out throughout. And set the direction of the vessel. Well, what sets the direction of your life? It's what's in your heart. The way you think. The way you speak. The way you evaluate life. The way you perceive things. Your beliefs, your conduct, your actions flow from your heart. All of those things are downstream from your heart. Every single one of them. Your heart is just a fountain pouring out and directing your body, your mind, to act, to do. The heart governs and dictates all of your body's actions. And how you behave then means that 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 reveals the true state of your heart. What's in your heart? Mark 7, 20, 23, Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes what? Evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Why do we need a new heart? Because that's what's there. That's what's in us. Why we need the new heart. Luke 6.45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart... His mouth speaks. See how the heart directs the mouth? The heart directs the body, governs the body. It's the same thing Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. When he talked about adultery. Where did that start? 
Was it to start with the physical act? No. It's for the lustful intent and motivation of the heart. The act of murder, where did that start? The physical act of taking a life? No, it started from within. It started from the heart. That's where the inclination was towards, towards evil. The compulsion, the, the inward thought and desire. Again, why we need a new heart. We need a new power source, a new captain in the command center. Solomon's telling his son here to keep his heart. Keep it. Guard it. Above everything else that must be kept and guarded, that has to be kept and guarded. That word keep has has various meanings in in the original language. It means to guard, of course, but it's also about to set a watch. Set a watch and restraint. If the direction of your life is determined by your heart, then you have to guard it above everything else. You got to restrain it. You got to set a watch over it. What goes into it. What your eyes are taking in. What your ears are taking in. Who you're around. Who you're interacting with. Who you're allowing to input. Give you messages that go down into your heart. With all diligence, right? With all, uh, with all diligence. How are we to do that? How do we do that? We already know that if we keep the words within our heart, that's going to help us to be kept from evil. We've seen that. But look at the further instructions given to us in this passage. Notice again the emphasis on the body parts here. Attention has to be given to our speech there in verse 24. And on. We need to to, to, keep a watch over our eyes. What are our eyes looking at? What are our eyes seeing? The path of our feet. Does does what comes out of our mouth reveal that we have a new heart? That we're walking in the way of wisdom? Or does our speech consist of things that are considered the way of the wicked and evil? Gossip and slander and prideful language and crude talk and cutting down others and continual negativity. But, But the life flooded with light, right? The heart flooded with light can follow the instructions of Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So if our heart, right, is is oriented to the way of wisdom, and our heart is filled with God's word and with his light, what's going to come out of our mouth? Light, yeah. It's going to be this, right? It's going to be... Uh, edifying talk. Words that give grace to those who hear it. How many of you love being around people who are just always sarcastic? No, nobody likes that. Always cutting someone down with their words. Always talking about themselves. Nobody likes that. Don't be that person. You can be that person, right, if you're walking in the way of wisdom and your heart is filled with God's word. And you, you see this passage here and you're like, no corrupting talk out of matter. Well, then I need to make sure that, that I'm not saying crude things. I always marvel with someone who calls himself a Christ follower and man, and just what comes out of their mouth is just garbage. There's this, right? There's this disconnect, right? Between this supposed profession and confession of faith and their actions here shouldn't be that way. What are your eyes looking at? What's the command that he gives him here? Keep your eyes straight ahead, right? Eyes forward, son. Why? That way and that way, right, is going to lead to temptation, sin, and lust. Don't let your eyes gaze upon things that are going to incite sinful thoughts and actions. Like what Job says in in chapter 31, he says, "I I made a covenant with my eyes. And not to look lustfully upon a woman. To make a covenant with his eyes and say, I'm going to keep my eyes, my gaze straight ahead. David says this in Psalm 101. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. He goes on in that psalm to talk about how he'll walk in integrity of heart within his home. Now, we know he failed there 
(laughs) He set his eyes on something he shouldn't have been setting his eyes on. Somebody taking a little shower. (laughs) Right? But he said, I'll not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. How much harder is that today to do than it was in David's time? David didn't have the internet. David wasn't bombarded 24-7 with, with, with you know, uh, sexually immoral you know, commercials and advertising. There was no social media. There weren't countless streaming services, 24-7 access to porn. No, no, he didn't have any of that. But he's saying, I've, you know, I've just, I've, I've just, I'm not going to set anything before my eyes that is evil, that's worthless. This is hard to live, right? Right, right now, we're flooded, right? We can't go down anywhere without seeing something that incites some temptation or some fashion of temptation. Because our eyes never stop taking things in. So what do we do? How do we guard our heart? Brothers and sisters, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. Above anything else, our gaze must be directed at Christ and looking to Christ and what He's done for us. It's important. Guys, we know what we struggle with, right? Sexual temptation. And this world has made it quite easy. You know, it just flaunts it everywhere, right? Sexually immoral things. You don't have to work hard anymore to see that kind of stuff. What are you supposed to do? Well, yeah, put put filters on your computer. That's all great and wonderful. But the hard issue is what? Our gaze has to be upon Christ. We have to look to Him and His work. I mean, set our eyes straight before before Him, to look to Him itself. We need to do that. We need to watch our step. Talking about pondering the path of your feet. Where are my feet pointed? What path are my feet directed towards? What am I truly running after? What direction in life am I going in right now? Are they oriented in the path of wisdom or in the way of folly? There's a lot of temptations that will cause us to swerve to the right, cause us to swerve to the left. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the the pride of life, all of the world's distractions, all the world's attractions that are dangled before us, right, are just meant to shift the the compass of our heart just, just a little bit, just ever so slightly. That'll take us off course. Just a little bit. Think about, you know, you're on a compass. If you're just one degree off on a compass, are you going to get there? Are you going to get to your destination? No, you're not. Yeah, one degree doesn't sound like a lot, but over the course of many miles, you are way off course. You are way off course. If you're on a, if you're on a ship and that, that the ship's navigational course is off by even less than a degree over the course of a journey across the sea, they're not going to end up anywhere near their intended destination. This is what the world wants to do. It wants to knock you a little bit off course dangling this temptation before you or that temptation before you, to lust after this thing, to covet after this thing, to go your own way, to follow the sinful courses of our own heart's desires. And next thing you know, we're, we're not anywhere near where we need to be on the way of wisdom. Guard your heart. Guard what goes in it, brothers and sisters. This is not just for your kids. It's an important message for them, of course. But, it, but it's for us. Guard your heart. We talked about this at the men's meeting Friday night, you know. What we take in through social media and news. And it's just constant garbage all the time. We need to guard our hearts. We need to stop it. We talked about that at the men's meeting. I extend this to our whole church. Get off social media. Like if that's taking your heart off course... Get off of it. Get off of it. There's no fruit in it for you. The negativity of the news, not to mention you don't even know if it's true or not half the time. Why bother? Why bother? Oh, I need to be informed. Form yourself from God's word. Because then it doesn't matter what happens in the world. We're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. Guard what goes in those ears. 
Guard, guard what your eyes are being flooded with all the time. It's affecting your heart. It's changing your heart. And your heart directs your life, brothers and sisters. So our hope, our only hope is Christ. Our only hope is Christ. See, ultimately, it's not to swerve off the path. Don't swerve from Him. Don't swerve from Him. Don't lose sight of Him. Don't lose sight of what He's done for you. Look to Him. Follow Him. And the only hope we have of, of doing these things, because we're going to fail miserably in these things, is that we're clinging to Christ. But more importantly than us clinging to Christ is the reality that if we're in Him, He is clinging to us. He's got a firm grasp of us. You are in the grip of His grace. And He's promised that nothing can snatch you out of the Father's hands. That's our only confidence through all of this. That's our only hope in all of this. He's holding on to us. And because He's holding on to us, brothers and sisters... Then we have hope that what he said he will do and what he's promised to do will come to pass. That he will safely deliver us through the path of life here to eternal life. To the glories of the new heavens and the earth and the promises for that day, brothers and sisters. Look to Christ. Look to him. Trust him. Don't lose sight of him. Keep him before your eyes. Fill your eyes and ears with his word continually. Put it within your heart. Hide it within your heart. And let that, let that begin to flow out of your life. And it will direct your eyes and your ears and your hands and your feet for the glory of God.